You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Hello, I'm Jonathan Pinckney, Senior Researcher for the Program on Nonviolent Action at the U.S. Institute of Peace, and it's my pleasure to welcome you uh, to this event series on people power, peace, and democracy. In these events, we'll bring together academics and activists, peace builders, and policymakers to discuss practical lessons learned from groundbreaking research at the intersection of nonviolent action, peace building, and political change. We'll talk about how mediation can transform nonviolent action movements show the strategies grassroots movements has used to pressure warring parties to come to the negotiation table, and how action on the streets can carry those negotiations to a peaceful resolution. And we'll take a long-term look at how nonviolent action and inclusive dialogue and negotiation processes can help forge a long-term sustainable democracy that includes the voices of the most marginalized. We hope these conversations will inform and inspire you as together we seek to better understand and bring about a world where conflict and injustice can be resolved without violence. Thank you. Ordinary citizens during civil wars might seem to have few options for moving their countries toward peace. And when peace processes happen, they're often dominated by political elites without meaningful inclusion of grassroots voices. But the powerful example of courageous activists who've led many different campaigns around the world shows that nonviolent action can play a crucial role in transforming armed conflict. But how does this work? And what tactics and strategies are most successful for activists and their external allies in these situations? Uh, to discuss uh, some of these questions today, I'm joined first by two leading researchers on the topic, uh, Dr. Luke Abs, a research fellow at the University of Essex, and Dr. Marina Petrova, a postdoctoral research fellow at Bocconi University in Milan, Italy. Uh, for the last year, Drs. Abs and Petrova have been working on a USIP cross-national research project on the nonviolent action tactics that are most effective in promoting peace in civil wars, and that's what we'll be chatting about this morning. Uh, welcome, Luke and Marina. It's uh, really wonderful to have both of you with us this morning. Uh, so I'd like to start uh, just with a kind of basic introductory question. Um, can you introduce us to your research on nonviolent action and peace processes? Uh, what kinds of civil wars and nonviolent action were you looking at, and uh, what were you trying to understand? Okay, so um, basically we're looking at nonviolent action that's carried out by uh, civil society organizations in the context of civil war, and what we're interested in is does these forms of nonviolent action impact civil war peace processes? And in particular, we're interested that does these former actions increase the likelihood of in the initial negotiations? And then subsequently, does this increase the likelihood of a peace settlement? So in this regard, we, we kind of see a civil war peace process as a, se a series of kind of peace initiatives leading from initial negotiations to an eventual um, peace settlement. Um, this, of course, isn't necessarily linear, so there might maybe a few kind of peace agreements. So a peace agreement might may fail and subsequently succeed, or there might be a series of uh, settlements that basically pick uh, different aspects of the conflict. So we're interested in 
you know, is this action uh, active around these time periods and is, is it having an effect? Is it having a positive effect on the peace process itself? And um, so th the reason why we, we've been looking into this is because we know from civil resistance research or, or research on nonviolent action from the last 10 years that this has a very kind of a strong effect on different types of political change. So, for instance, uh, regime change, democratization, and also improves quality of democracy. So we know that nonviolent resistance can have huge, uh, you know, impacts on political change. What we don't know so well is the impacts that this may have dur during civil war. So there's some kind of emerging areas of research. So there's some excellent case research that's been conducted on Colombia, which is looking at kind of local communities and how they engage with armed groups. Uh, they're basically finding that they can, you know, get, they can create kind of informal agreements that creates conformity and reduces violence uh, in these areas, and essentially leading to what they call zones of peace. Uh, there's some new research that's ongoing looking at nonviolent campaigns and whether these impacts uh, civil war peace processes. Um, some research that I've conducted myself um, with the International Centre on Nonviolent Conflicts is, is some, finding some good evidence about this. And basically, when nonviolent campaigns are active, we're seeing an increased likelihood of peace agreements. Um, but this research, in, and it's still emerging, both tends to focus on specific actors, so nonviolent campaigns or like local actors in Colombia. When this kind of misses a lot of other actors that are active in various civil wars, and the, the you know the diversity and variety of nonviolent tactics that these organisations are using. So we're trying to take a broader approach to understand what's going on and what the impacts you know these various different tactics are having. And yeah, and sorry if I might jump in. Um, essentially, we we look at um, four specific nonviolent tactics in this project, um, we which we think are extremely important, and they have been widely used by um, different activists and civil society actors. So we uh, focus on protest tactics, uh, such as demonstrations. In addition, we examine political engagement tactics, such as uh, lobbying and bridging activities. And looking through non-cooperation tactics, such as uh, strikes and boycotts. And uh, finally, we explore intervention tactics such as sit-ins, occupations, and the cre creation of um, alternative institutions. And in, in this project, we um, examine major deadlier civil wars on the African uh, continent in the post-Cold War period uh, in the years between 1990 and 2009. Um, we believe that the focus on um, these deadlier major wars is important because it uh, <clears throat> it provides us um, with with an arena to study the more difficult conflicts, the ones that are perhaps least likely to see a peace process, and the ones that we probably um, uh, will see more difficulties for uh, activists and civil society actors to engage in nonviolent tactics. So all the effects on nonviolent tactics that we find are actually extremely important 
um, since, since we ex examine these very difficult cases. Great. Uh, thank you so much for that overview. I'd love to hear um, from some from either of you some examples of these different nonviolent action tactics during civil wars that particularly stand out to you, uh, and a little bit about some of the impacts that uh, some of those specific cases might have had. Yeah. So I think I, I think I can answer this question. So I think that I mean, there's so many different cases, uh, you know, and, and motivating cases for this study as well. But I think two probably come to mind. Um, the first is in Liberia, which is a very well-known case uh, with the Women for Peace. Uh, sorry, uh, Women of Liberia Mass Action for Peace, um, which is a women's organisation that uh, recruited from kind of different ethnicities, different kind of religions. Uh, came together to basically uh, protest against uh, the civil war in the country and what was going on. So they started initially with kind of mass demonstrations, um, uh, basically in the capital, uh, some kind of political engagement activities, um, basically trying to both pressure and support uh, in this initial kind of peace negotiations. And, and they were very successful in that. Uh, later on, they kind of moved to kind of uh, kind of more intervention tactics, such as sit-ins, uh, occupations. So towards the end, the kind of conflict got um, kind of increasing intensity, and the peace process was actually a threat. And um, so they actually uh, occupied around the kind of presidential palace, going as far as actually stopping people leaving to try and pressure for peace. Uh, they even sent a delegation to, uh, to you know formal peace talks in Ghana uh, to continue to lobby and try and push the parties towards peace. I think another case which shows, you know, kind of a different aspect, shows the, the power of protest and how protest can actually change the dynamics of, of civil war is, I mean, there's many cases um, such as Nepal um, and other well-known cases, but one thing that really comes to mind is Mali because it's a very unlikely case. It, it emerged uh, in the early 90s uh, in one of the poorest countries on earth in, you know, during an ongoing civil war in the north in the Tuareg region um, with a very repressive kind of military government and, you know, a very kind of, uh, you know, small kind of urban um, percentage of the population. And so it's very difficult for them to mobilise in, in them situations, but uh, they were able to. And the Alliance for Democracy in Mali uh, led Initial, uh, sorry, initial kind of mass protests uh, at the end of 1990, and by mid-1991, they'd actually overthrown the military government, government. And what this really had is two notable effects. So initially, it had an effect on um, leading to initial peace negotiations with the military government and the rebels, kind of out of necessity, because troops were um, diverted from the Tuareg region to the capital to deal with the unrest. And, but later on, it had a real effect on reinvigorating the peace process. So once the military government was removed, the civilian government really pushed for peace. They pushed for initiatives like devolving power to try and give, uh, to try and spread democracy, but also give the Tuaregs more kind of local powers to basically solve both issues. And also engaged in a lot of kind of civic activities, you know, different kind of forums to bring civil society together and come up with solutions. So. These two cases, amongst many others, show that there is huge potential here for, uh, for positive, um, a positive effect of these actions. Great. Thanks so much, Luke. 
Um, so, Marina, you mentioned before uh, that you know these four categories of nonviolent action tactics that you're looking at, from political engagement to protests to non-cooperation and intervention. So, what have you found about the kinds of nonviolent action tactics in these categories that particularly affect whether civil war negotiations are are going to happen? That sort of first stage that you were talking about. Yes, so we actually uncover a very interesting um, a picture um, on the effects of uh, these different uh, nonviolent tactics on civil war negotiations. We see that these uh, different tactics indeed produce uh, different effects on the likelihood of uh, negotiations. Um, we find we've, we initially hypothesized, uh, assumed that protests and political engagement tactics, as we've seen in many um, examples, uh, real-world examples, would have a positive influence uh, on uh, negotiations. And in, indeed, we do find a very strong positive effect, which is extremely um, encouraging. So. This really suggests that protest and political engagement tactics uh, can um, contribute to conflict transformation and uh, facilitate cooperation between the warring, par warring parties and actually uh, help them uh, come to the negotiating table. Um, with regards to non-cooperation and intervention tactics, uh, we initially thought that these two tactics will have little to no direct effect on negotiations because we see those as more having to do with uh, conflict intensity, really. As uh, we have some preliminary indication that specifically non-cooperation um, it tends um, to um, uh, reduce conflict uh, intensity. And uh, from anecdotal evidence, we find that um, non-cooperation tactics, uh, such as stay-at-home strikes, um, which have occurred in a lot of contexts in Africa uh, in objection to violence, then they reduce battle, uh, battle deaths. However, in our analysis, we surprisingly find um, that non-cooperation and intervention tactics uh, are negatively associated uh, with uh, uh, the likelihood of negotiation. I should stress that these are our preliminary findings and we are still exploring these very surprising uh, effect, uh, negative effect, um, but um, our um, initial sort of reaction uh, is that we suspect that uh, this negative um, influence uh, could be related to the timing of the events. Um, and basically, if non-cooperation, for instance, is linked to lower conflict intensity, this does not really uh, mean that this would uh, then bring a green light uh, for the negotiations to take place. Uh, there could be a lot of dynamics going on. And uh, as, as mentioned, these are preliminary uh, findings. So um, we will be exploring this uh, in uh, further detail as we move on with the project. Thank you. That's yeah. That's really fascinating about kind of 
you know, it's not just that nonviolent action sort of writ large has a, a uniform effect on the likelihood of negotiations in, in these situations, but that the specific stat tactical choices that movements make uh, may have, you know, differential uh, effects on, on outcomes like this. I'm curious about that sort of second stage as well, kind of once negotiations have started, uh, how do these different kinds of tactics uh, then affect the likelihood that a, a peace agreement is going to, to come out of those negotiations? Yes, yeah, so we're, we're also finding divergent effects uh, in terms of peace agreements as well. So subject to the initially being a, a peace uh, sorry, a peace uh, negotiation, and then you know, looking later at whether there's subsequently a peace a peace settlement or a peace agreement, uh, we're also finding these kind of interesting divergent effects. So, one of the things we expected, and I think everyone would expect, is the same kind of protests and engagement activities that uh, that we're finding really good evidence for that kind of increases and you know the initial negotiations and initiates a peace process. We're not finding much evidence at the moment that this is is also related to subsequent agreements. Um, so, which is kind of a surprising finding because there is emerging evidence of mass nonviolent campaigns and and um, mass kind of protests against the government are increasing likelihood of peace agreements. But what we suspect at the moment, we're not too sure because it's still kind of preliminary. But what we suspect this could be is um you know civil society organizations might actually start to lose influence as the peace process peace process continues and this is something we need to kind of look much more into so it's, it's very hard to sustain this kind of culture for peace and, and sustain that kind of level of mobilization through the whole process and the second real challenge for civil society organizations is they don't tend to be included in um, formal peace negotiations or, or eventual peace settlements. They, they tend to be excluded from these processes, which is a real shame because if they're having a, a really good effect in the beginning and they're unable to sustain and continue to you know, support the peace process, that, that, is, that would be a real shame. But we're not really too sure and we're still, we're still kind of exploring this prospect. But what we are finding is is more evidence for intervention so these kind of stay-at-home strikes and um, also the creation of alternative institutions occupations these kind of more kind of uh more kind of stringent kind of forms of action and this we basically find that this increases the likelihood of a, of a peace agreement and what we think this might relate to is i mean for example this really fits the situation in liberia where we had the kind of initial engagement we had the initial protest activity and then later on when the peace process looked like it was going to fail there was a kind of switching tactics more towards kind of occupation sit-ins to pressure the parties into the agreement um perhaps because they were kind of excluded from the process or not as included as they should have been um and also um you know in other contexts we know the importance of alternative institutions that are created by civil society so if we think of you know in south africa when we think of the committees that were set up in the townships, um, were basically running their own kind of uh, their own kind of education, their own kind of healthcare, their own kind of politics. The basic, it basically undermines the legitimacy of the government and government institutions. But what alternative institutions also do is they provide a blueprint for what future inclusive institutions might look like or how they might work, and basically pave the way for you know um, what you know, democracy or what 
these kind of in inclusive institutions, which are often form the core of most kind of peace settlements, you know, it can provide a blueprint for this. So we're finding some evidence there, but of course, you know, this is still very preliminary and we, we need to look into this further. That's really fascinating that kind of the, the impact of particular tactics in a way switches depending on sort of what stage you're at. Uh, and I think, again, it's a really it's a really crucial lesson for for activists and civil society groups that are that are interested in influencing peace processes that, you know, you may like uh, you need to be aware of the strategic situation um, and and cognizant of how that not all nonviolent action tactics are going to have the same kind of effects uh, in, in different contexts. Um, I, I'd be curious to hear a little bit more uh, from both of you about, you know, this kind of question of practical lessons. Um, you know, if you were if you were to give some key takeaways from this for activists who may be interested in in influencing uh, or like helping their countries uh, move towards peace, um, what what would that be? And uh, perhaps for you know external peace builders as well who are interested in sort of promoting peace and supporting uh, activists and civil society groups on the ground, uh, what would be some some key takeaways or lessons that you would emphasize from your your research? Right. So we really find in this project that different nonviolent tactics in civil contexts are likely to produce divergent effects on the conflict dynamics and the likelihood um, of a peace process. And the general finding, as you, Jonathan, correctly mentioned, is that uh, different tactics also work uh, differently at different stages of, uh, of the peace process, so to speak. But one thing that it, uh, emerges from, from our research uh, and uh, we think is quite important uh, is that protest and political engagement tactics in, in initiating negotiations and a peace process. Um, and um, this really suggests that uh, civil society actors, activists, uh, ordinary people do have the power to really um, engage uh, in, in productive nonviolent action uh, and not just be bystanders and observers of the violent conflict, but actually use these nonviolent tactics strategically to change the course um, of the conflict. Um, and perhaps a, a key takeaway message for um, um, or a lesson for activists and ordinary people is to use these specific nonviolent tactics strategically uh, at, at the different stages um, uh, of the peace process, as we see that not all forms of nonviolent action work at all stages of the peace process. And uh, Luke, do you want to add to this? Yeah, so I think in terms of international stakeholders, um, I, I do believe that um, these kind of stakeholders are aware that there's nonviolent action going on, on on the ground, especially kind of international peace peace building organisations and you know various other kind of stakeholders that are involved in the conflict. I do think they're aware, but I, you know, I, you know, for the reason of this research some of these kind of stakeholders are not sure what the kind of impact of, of these actions are. And there may actually be some suspicion that, you know, maybe these forms of action might actually make things worse, you know, might actually escalate the conflict. So I think there's a genuine fear there. But I feel what our research, although, you know, again, it's preliminary at this stage, what our research is showing is that, you know, them fears are, are not really being seen in, in our data. So 
you know, if, if engagement and protest activity is really supporting a peace process, I really think the main message is that external actors should support these, these organisations, should support this on the ground, you know, these bottom-up processes. Um, and I think for two key reasons, right, because we know from research on civil resistance against, you know, kind of dictatorships, we know that when there's kind of international, you know, more international support, from abroad, they're more likely to be successful. So perhaps with these kind of different actors on the ground, they, you know, with more kind of technical support, more financial support, they they might also be more successful, successful, and able to make a bigger impact on on the civil war and the peace process. And um, yeah, lastly, we we know from other research that when civil society is included in these peace settlements, that peace is more likely to be durable. So if we are having this, we if we are having this process where you know civil society is starting to be drowned out and not not included in later parts of the peace process, and and definitely not the peace settlement itself, that's a real shame because not only could they do some good, you know, from the bottom up, I mean in context that they obviously know well. You know, it's their, you know, operating in their own countries. Um, you know, um, th that would be a real shame because it wouldn't also, it would also not just support the, the peace process itself, but also we, there's more evidence that lead to more durable outcomes. Great. Thank you so much to both of you. I think just to, to wrap up, I'll ask, is there anything else from your, from your research that you'd like to share? Anything else that we didn't cover that you think would be, uh, of interest and uh, important uh, important takeaways that we haven't gotten to yet. Any final thoughts? I mean, we could we could just add in terms of so we've also looked at kind of conflict intensity in which Marina was talking about, and so what I mentioned in terms of the case research that's done in Colombia, so a lot of kind of nonviolent resistance against um, armed violence. So you can think of this in terms of kind of violence reduction strategies. We're finding evidence of that as well in in African context. These really difficult African contexts. You know, these kind of stay-at-home strikes, which are common in, in different kind of contexts. You know, we're showing that this is actually reducing conflict intensity. So that's the other kind of main finding that we, we have at the moment. Yes, indeed, and uh, also uh, we, we in, in our research we also wanted to um, kind of also look into conflict intensity and nonviolent tactics, different types uh, thereof, uh, because sort of the set the stage in a way for for peace process. We cannot uh, capture all these dynamics uh, uh, in, in a very, very granular way, but we do uh, we do try to take care and really explore uh, also uh, conflict intensity and, uh, and how these uh, conflict dynamics can also impact um, um, the likelihood of a peace process. Great. Uh, well, thank you so much to both of you for, for sharing some of the findings from this groundbreaking research with us. Uh, it's really exciting to hear, and uh, we look forward to the, the final publication of your work. Uh, so Dr. Abs and Petrova have shared some of the broad statistical patterns that shape nonviolent action in civil war peace processes. Uh, but we're also curious, of course, of what this looks like on the ground. 
And so that's the question uh, that we'll take on uh, with our next panel uh, coming up right now. joined now by three outstanding panelists uh, to discuss nonviolent action and civil war peace processes uh, in a little bit more depth. Uh, first, uh, Dr. Esra, uh, Esra Chuhadar is senior expert for dialogue and peace processes uh, here at the U.S. Institute of Peace. Uh, she conducts research on a wide range of peacebuilding topics, uh, including inclusive peace processes, mediation, track to diplomacy, uh, and the role of civil society in peacebuilding. Uh, Jacob Bolbior is an activist focused on promoting social change and active citizenship in South Sudan. Uh, he's a founding member uh, and the media coordinator of Anataban, a youth-driven initiative that uses art as a platform for the youth of South Sudan uh, to speak out on national issues. And finally, we have Wahid Zahir. Uh, Wahid is a journalist and peacebuilding trainer working to promote sustainable peace and justice uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, thank you so much to all of you for being here this morning. Uh, I'm really excited to get to have this conversation with all of you. Um, and I'd like to, to turn to Esra first. Um, Esra, I'm curious uh, about how Dr. Uh, Abs Petrova's research resonates with other work that USIP and you yourself have done on dialogue and negotiation processes uh, in the context of civil wars. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Jonathan. It actually resonates uh, a lot um, and as, as someone uh, looking at their research from a dialogue negotiation mediation perspective, I found a lot of uh, connections between um, uh, the, the literature between what we're doing and, and the dialogue literature and what they're working on. Uh, to begin with, uh, let me just give you two examples, but to begin with, I think it is really great that uh, they have uh, shown that different tactics, different nonviolent action tactics are um, useful at different stages of a peace process. Uh, I think this is uh, really something that we needed terribly in this uh, area. Um, so, um, so, for example, different tactics uh, are uh, more effective in, in the negotiation onset stage and different types of tactics are more important on uh, negotiation peace agreement stage. I think it would be really interesting to also look at like whether the same tactics uh, or which tactics are also uh, effective in the implementation stage, because that's one part that we're really struggling with at the moment. A lot of peace agreements that are negotiated successfully, you know, fail uh, within uh, zero to five years. And we also see in some cases that uh, nonviolent action or, or civil resistance movements continue to engage with the process in the implementation phase too. So I would also be curious to hear what they think about um, how nonviolent action continues in the implementation phase, for example. That's one area that resonated a lot with our work. The other, the other thing, the other example is um, I think we can use some of their findings in how we think about inclusive 
modalities and inclusion modalities in peace processes. I think that would be very useful. Just to give an example, uh, so for instance, I've, I've done a lot of research on track two dialogues. And one key issue in track two dialogues is, uh, you know, how do you transfer the outcomes, the recommendations from these dialogue uh, workshops to um, uh, track one uh, negotiations or to public opinion, et cetera. And I think, and one of, uh, the, usually, you know, we, we divide these strategies into two as insider strategies and outsider strategies, but it also, uh, their research gives us a lot of ideas about which the which strategy can be useful at what stage in order to successfully or more effectively transfer from dialogue to uh, other uh, domains, for instance, uh, lobbying, for instance, is is used as as one tactic, and 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 it would be interesting to really look at whether lobbying or political engagement. Uh, is um, a better strategy for track two practitioners at a certain uh, phase of a peace process uh, or similar to what they found or not. So that's another thing that really resonated with me. Um, and uh, the last comment perhaps that I can make is uh, related to my uh, research on um, uh, my recent research on uh, the on inclusive commissions and their role and their effect on durable peace. Uh, the authors that our researchers also mentioned that um, that there is an interesting literature developing on um, what affects or what kind of inclusion modalities affect durable peace. And uh, the Liberia example they gave is very interesting in this sense because in Liberia. Uh, we see two critical things. Liberia is a case with high durable peace, by the way, so it's re a relatively very successful case. And we see that actually, as, as the researchers mentioned, nonviolent action, we see that at, at the negotiation onset. We see actually nonviolent action also uh, in the peace agreement, the agreement making stage. But in, when, when you also look at the successful implementation phase in Liberia, uh, we see that, for example, um, a lot of these uh, civil society representatives, some of them coming from the nonviolent uh, movement, are represented widely in inclusive commissions that are set up to implement the peace agreement, for instance. And uh, one, fi one finding that we have in our current research with Dan Druckmann finds that inclusive commissions has the most as the highest impact on durable peace. And Liberia is a case where we see actually a, a, a lot, a many inclusive commissions set up for the implementation phase. And in a lot of these commissions, we see some representatives of the nonviolent movement as well, like these women who, who were there from the beginning and all. So, so I think it, it, is, it is really interesting and it, it, it really raised a lot of questions uh, for me in this sense um, too. Uh, and, and another area this uh, research really, I think, could be very useful for us is, um, you know, can we really extend the, the effect of nonviolent movements into durable peace by also somehow engaging 
them in these implementation phase uh, institutions like commissions or um, you know transitional justice mechanisms, etc. Because we know there are a lot of examples of this um, that civil society inclusion in these mechanisms, but how connected this civil society inclusion in these mechanisms is to the initial nonviolent uh, movements is one question to look at. I think. Uh, I'll, I'll stop here. Thank you. It was it's fascinating. Great. Wonderful. No, thank you so much, Esther. And I, I agree. I and mean, this is a really crucial point about, you know, not just thinking about what, what leads to a negotiation and then what leads to an agreement, but what makes that agreement stick over time um, and what kinds of tactics by, by nonviolent movements uh, can, can influence that. I think to, to get sort of some of that, uh, that grassroots perspective, uh, Jacob, I'd like to turn to you next. Um, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on the ways that citizens have been using nonviolent action to, to advocate for peace in South Sudan, both you know, your own kind of experience uh, and then I mean, any reactions you might have to the, the research discussion that we've been having as well. Um, thank you so much, Jonathan. Um, uh, nonviolent action uh, has been really a major stone in shaping the peace deal in South Sudan uh, before, during, and after uh, the, the signing of the peace in South Sudan. Uh, looking at some of the incidences uh, that happened uh, before the, the peace deal, uh, we had uh, individuals uh, writing uh, 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 op-ed, um, doing different kinds of uh, protests in, uh, based on what is uh, what was happening in South Sudan. And these individuals were either detained, uh, arrested, or even killed. But looking at that, they had to strategize further and come up with different ideas on how uh, we could uh, use nonviolent tactic or actions to be able to uh, tackle some of these uh, issues and also advocate and, and, uh, and uh, uh, talk about peace in South Sudan. So uh, in 2017, we decided in 2016 actually, we decided to uh, form an initiative called Anataban as creatives of South Sudan in order to be able to find ways on how to influence uh, the peace processes or also on how to uh, get the masses involved and be able to, you know, to speak up on issues of 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 of, uh, of conflict in the country because in as much as the peace uh, that was signed in 2015 was a bit inclusive, those you know there were a lot of uh, voices that were not included in that uh, in signing of that peace and we saw what happened uh, in 2016. The conflict again happened after two months of. Uh, the then uh, 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 vice president, actually the current first vice president, uh, came back to uh, to South Sudan, and then the formation of the government was done. Two months after that, there was conflict. So we decided on different forms of nonviolent action that we can use in order to kind of influence the process and hold these individuals accountable. So um, we came together as collectives, and use creative tactics in order to be able to speak up and not just as an individual, not just like Jacob, but as a collective, as an artistic platform, Anataban. And uh, when we did this, we saw some bit of, uh, of, uh, of improvement and responses. I'll give you an example of, uh, of uh, one of the incidences that, uh, one of the things that uh, got actually has involved in the peace talk in 2017. Uh, when they started the, uh, 
the peace talk in Addis in 2017, in December 2017, we decided to come up with an initiative or a campaign called South Sudan is Watching Campaign. And with this campaign, we brought together uh, different uh, artists, visual artists, musicians, poets, and uh, all creatives within the country to speak out on issues that are being deliberated on, uh, in Addis Ababa by these uh, political parties and telling them that has, in as much as you're deliberating in that hall, we are here watching our South Sudanese. And we are trying to see what you guys are going to come up with. Is it that you're going to look up to your position or are you looking at the suffering of the people of South Sudan, those who are in the refugee camp and those who are within uh, uh, the country? And this is something that uh, has never been uh, done before during these uh, peace processes. People has, have, have never mobilized and get together and try to question them as they were going to start uh, deliberating on, 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 on peace deal. So this action actually made some of us to be invited, uh, including myself, uh, to Addis Ababa and participate and uh, participated in the peace talk. And while we were there, we also decided to go with some of our paintings that we had done in Juba. Uh, one of our artists did uh, a painting of uh, uh, different parts of like uh, the South Sudan that he wants to see and the South Sudan that we are in now trying to unfold, you know, uh, trying to fold what what uh, the bad part of South Sudan and bringing up a South Sudan of progress, a South Sudan where we're living together, we are, where we are coexisting regardless of our diversity. And uh, when we did this, we went to Addis and we printed some of this, uh, we, uh, some of these, uh, uh, this painting in, in, in small papers. And those who were in the room actually went with these papers and distributed to all uh, uh, the political parties who are in the room. So this was, uh, it created uh, some conversation in the room and some sense of urgency that, you know, South Sudanese, uh, the citizens themselves are actually watching us and they're seeing what we are doing here with the action that uh, they, ha uh, they have done here and showing and bringing these papers to the room. That means they're waiting for us to see what we're going to come up with. So with that, uh, there was some sense of uh, uh, this action accelerating uh, the peace process and the political parties getting to at least reach some level of agreement. And uh, that's what uh, came up with the peace deal that we have now. Uh, and after the peace deal, we also decided to uh, at least have some sense of uh, political engagement because there were some political parties who were not part of the, of the deal that, who, uh, that were out of the deal. And I remember we, you know, we had uh, a group of us who went uh, to meet uh, the team of uh, Thomas Cirillo. Though we did not succeed in that, we tried to, you know, advocate and talk to him on uh, giving the issues that South Sudanese are facing. Because in real sense, most of our political uh, elites in, in Juba, they do not actually go to the grassroots and they don't know what this, what people are facing. In as much as they have their position, they just want to be there. So what I have seen over time uh, with uh, the civil society and uh, most of the activists engaging uh, the citizen and having them to be the ones to uh, bring forth the issues that they are facing, uh, there has been some level of improvement and sustainability of the peace in the country. Thank you, Jacob. It's great to it's great to hear that, uh, Wahid. I'd like to turn to you. You've also been involved in grassroots peace building and, and nonviolent action for peace in Afghanistan. 
Um, what can you tell us about how ordinary people in Afghanistan are, are working for peace and the kinds of tactics that you've been using uh, that have been most effective there? Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, uh, first of everything, I would like to say that there are millions of ordinary people in Afghanistan. Uh, all of them may not work for peace, but uh, at least everyone uh, is praying and wishing for peace in Afghanistan. Uh, if we collect all the politicians, there may be around 200 and 300, but the publics is uh, very large and there are more, there are a lot. But the public uh, cannot work, they cannot come together uh, because the problems which are produced due to the war and the problems which are created for war uh, from some people who's, who's has some interest at war, uh, they are a lot. And these problems could be uh, hunger, uh, incompetence, lack of courage, and uh, we can say that uh, even they don't have uh, basic facilities of living, so they cannot work uh, in both sides. They, 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 there are some people, they, they work for peace. For example, I can mention there are some societies, there are some movements, even there are some individuals who are working for peace and uh, they are using, for example, they are marching, uh, they have some uh, poetry competitions, uh, debate competitions, they are working in education field uh, for promoting the culture of peace and for uh, promoting the culture of uh, nonviolent and tolerance, uh, uh, but it will take in here in Afghanistan, and uh, I have been engaged in uh, a lot with university students. Uh, we were working uh, to promote peace through debate, and uh, I think it is very necessary, and I think we should have started from very beginning. Uh, uh, there are some uh, people who are still working in this field and uh, I think it will work a lot and it will have a very good result. And uh, we, we also had uh, some competitions, as I mentioned before. Uh, we had some art festivals uh, because we can do all these things and uh, we are working in this regard. And uh, what I believe a lot, uh, uh, as, as according to my experience, uh, I have started uh, peace education uh, five years ago and around six years ago. I believe if we have uh, a curriculum for peace in all our uh, 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 in uh, academic institutions or uh, academic uh, centers, uh, it will have a very good impact for our people uh, because uh, I believe uh, we cannot have a very sustainable and a very uh, peaceful country just in one in two years or just in five years. It will take time and we need to work uh, a lot in this regard. Thank you, Wahid. Um, I'd be curious to hear from uh, either of you, Jacob or Wahid, you know, so one of the things that uh, Dr. Abs and Dr. Petrova were, were talking about was, and that, uh, that uh, uh, that Dr. Chadar was mentioning just before this, uh, is this sort of impact of different kinds of tactics at uh, different stages, sort of before the negotiations, during the negotiations, uh, and then during the implementation phase as well. I'm curious if you've, uh, if you've seen anything like this uh, in your own countries, 
You know, are there certain things that work that uh, worked better for you? You know, when it was before leading to negotiations or during negotiations, uh, what are your what are your thoughts on uh, on on these mm -hmm. impacts of different tactics at different times? Mm -hmm. Uh, thank you. All the tactics which were mentioned before, they are very important, but uh, uh, according as a grassroots peace builders current and uh, 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 right now, uh, there are uh, some peace builders, some peace activists who oversees this uh, procedure of peace negotiation and they will judge and they are judging that what are good for our future and what are not good for our future. So uh, in this situation, at least they need to raise their voices, what they wanted uh, Afghanistan like in the future. And uh, uh, if uh, there are some problems and if we need something in this procedure, so uh, we can have uh, for example, some media, uh, social media campaigns, uh, we can raise our voices through medias, and even uh, we can start some non-cooperations uh, uh, tactics like uh, buy cards with uh, some of their uh, things or uh, their, we can say, their, uh, their announcements. Mm. Jacob, what are your, what are your yeah. thoughts on this question? Um, I think actually some of these uh, tactics work differently based on the atmosphere of what is happening at that particular time. Because uh, uh, in real sense, there are times when protests will work uh, during the process of uh, a negotiation or before the negotiation or even after the negotiation. Uh, so uh, for the implementation uh, process, but then it depends, it's context specific, it depends on how uh, you read the atmosphere on what is happening and how uh, uh, the stakeholders are actually uh, coming forth with the peace deal. So I definitely think that uh, all these processes work, but they work differently based on uh, how we study the atmosphere first and how the people uh, who are negotiating that peace uh, or other who are uh, the, the stakeholders toward the peace uh, deal are, you know, so looking at the, at the context specific and the atmosphere itself. Yeah. Great. Thanks, Jacob. Uh, Estra, I'll, uh, I'll turn back to you. Um, I'm curious, uh, you know, we've, we've brought up and, and you were mentioning before uh, that kind of uh, looking at nonviolent action uh, or the inclusion of even just the inclusion of civil society is often something that may not factor into uh, how, how many international peace builders think about uh, peace processes. Uh, what are some of the you know changes uh, or messages that you you wish the international peace building community would you know would would get and some lessons learned uh, from uh, both the, the research that we talked about earlier here as well as your own uh, that you think might be uh, could uh, could be spread more mm -hmm. um Jonathan I think uh, the um, what is really key uh, in this research uh, for the international peace building community is that it really uh, pushes us into thinking more about the complementarity uh, between different tools we have I'll, I'll call them tools but you know different different uh, either peace building tools or nonviolent action tools um, and and uh, and the the key here is to find really 
which ones work better together at what uh, stage of a, of a peace process. And in that sense, I, I mean, uh, we're, this research project really uh, gives us some really um, useful ideas in that sense. Uh, I mean, for instance, you asked um, uh, the question about pre-negotiation, negotiation implementation, um, while, uh, you know, I mean, all of these uh, different stages of a peace process, they have different needs, right? They have different dynamics. Uh, so a pre-negotiation stage, for example, is usually more confidential, um, is more private, because this is the stage where the elites uh, sort of try to explore uh, whether the other side is willing to really negotiate in good faith or not, whether it is feasible or not. They're they're also they're testing the the waters. Um, they are um, exploring what agenda would be possible, and this is a period where you see negotiation commitment as a, that, that is a serious problem, right? So, so that's a very different need in the negotiation process than later on in the in the in the as the negotiations become more public, they become more visible. Uh, then it becomes more important to generate public buy-in. For example, uh, it becomes more important um, that the, the negotiation process is locally owned, is seen as legitimate, etc. So there are very different needs uh, at different stages. And I think it is really crucial for the international peacebuilding community to think uh, that, you know, we, we know that, and, and this research also shows that it's nonviolent action in the same way does not work equally effectively at, at all of these stages. And I think uh, this is really, this is one major lesson that, a lesson that the international peacebuilding community should draw, I think, from this research. Uh, but I guess also, the, there's also a lot to be learned by the nonviolent action community here too, not just the peacebuilding community, um, to really think about, okay, what is the need of the negotiation process at this moment? And if there is a really need for confidentiality, then maybe really political engagement makes sense here, right? Rather than um, non-cooperation. Non but on the other hand, if the negotiations are stuck, if there's a stalemate, or if uh, if the the peace agreement if if some parties are foot dragging and not implementing what is agreed in the peace uh, agreement, then you know it really makes a lot of sense to think about non cooperation or some other intervention tactics, for example. So it's I think it it requires a mutual reassessment. Uh, both in the peacebuilding community and how they engage the nonviolent uh, action activists and nonviolent action um, tactics, but also it requires a lot of reassessment and thinking, I guess, on the on the nonviolent action community too. Like, what is the proper way to engage with the negotiation process? Wonderful, thanks, Esra. Uh, Jacob, um, I'll turn to you next. Um, just a, a sort of broad question. I'm curious, what things do you wish you know international international peace builders knew about the work of activists like yourselves to fight for for peace in your countries? Um, and and how can international peace builders be better partners uh, for for groups like yours? Um, great. Um, that's a it's a fantastic question. I've been actually uh, 
in so in so many uh, conversation these things have come up and how we feel like uh, uh, to be supported or being better partners in whatever we do uh, and as i said earlier uh, different context matters to different people at different times because in real sense uh, uh, it's a it's a game of uh, pushback with the political elites uh, uh, looking at activists. They look at activists as people who are, you know, against their uh, political ambitions, against their will and all that. So they will try by any means to do anything to try and push back the activists. And women are we competing to influence. These are the, the masses. And in real sense, when an activist come up and talk to the masses and give them certain information, the politician will try in one way or other to try and also counter whatever information you are giving them. And at some point we've been, some of us being called uh, the mouthpiece of the West, you are doing this and that, and, uh, or maybe you are just advocating for the uh, interests of this uh, specific organization and that. So it's good to look at how activists brand themselves and also try to understand how uh, they are approaching some of their issues that they are facing because most of these issues are complex. So uh, I think the best thing that uh, uh, international peace builders or partners uh, that, uh, that I would wish them to understand is that uh, first, it's good to uh, understand the context of which uh, some of these or some of us like the activists are coming from and how, what strategies have we employed in order to be able to try and break through barriers uh, It looks like uh, we may have, uh, Jacob may have dropped off the call, or at least his video is frozen. Uh, so I think, Wahid, I will turn to you then with uh, the same question, uh, actually, about, you know, what do you wish international peace builders knew about the work of activists like yourselves, and, and how can they be better partners uh, for, for people like you who are doing this uh, on-the-ground peace-building work? Oh, Wahid, you're muted, so if you could unmute yourself, please. Uh, thank you. I just uh, want to, uh, to say that, uh, as I said before, that it will take some time here in Afghanistan as we are working for sustainable peace and for justice in Afghanistan. Uh, it will take some time, but uh, uh, I, I just wanted to say for some international peace builders or peace activists, uh, if they are listening about Afghanistan or they are hearing Afghanistan, uh, Afghanistan might have very bad stories, but they also have some very good and positive stories. And uh, for uh, uh, for a if a kind of appreciating they can also reflect these positive and good uh, in this good stories of Afghanistan with others and uh, I just wanted to say some international peace builder uh, peace builders that we need uh, such online events even if we cannot manage offline events and in this events we will be able to share our experience with each others uh, I understand that uh, it matters uh, what is the context of a conflict in 
what is where is the geography it depends upon the culture it depends upon the norms of everywhere but at least we can share our experience we can share uh, where and how kind of tactics work there uh, so um, uh, i need uh, we we i need that we should have a very good relationships through social media through uh, such events that usip uh, is managing or any other ngos wonderful thank you so much wahid thank you uh, and i think uh, with that we'll uh, we'll wrap up our conversation and i will just say thank you once again uh, to esra jacob and wahid uh, for sharing your insights with us and for all that you do to work for peace uh, thanks to all of you uh, for joining us as well. Uh, the next event in our People Power, Peace and Democracy series will be held uh, live on April 20th at 10 a.m. Eastern, uh, where we'll, we'll be having a discussion of how inclusive dialogue and negotiation processes can help foster democracy in transitions initiated through nonviolent action. Uh, we hope you'll join us. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts.